Are you confused about what supplements you should actually be taking? In a world full of juice cleanses, detox teas, fancy promises, it can really be hard to trust anything. But high quality supplements, when dosed appropriately, can actually help support your fitness goals. And that's why I use Legion. I've been using Legion supplements since the beginning of this year, and after years of never really fully committing to one single brand due to lack of transparency in their labeling, unnecessary fluff, or just reporting things as blends and not knowing what's actually my product, I finally found a solid science-based product line that fits my supplementing needs. Legion's products are 100% naturally sweetened, and my favorite part, they are fully transparent in their labeling, and they use dosages that are actually backed by what the science says you need to be effective and support your fitness goals. And not the least amount you can get away with, and not just labeling as blends, but fully transparently telling you what's in your product and why they dosed it that way. And this is huge, because it lets you know exactly what you're taking and if it's actually going to be effective, and then you can know what's going into your body. My personal favorites are their cinnamon cereal whey. Yes, it tastes as good as it sounds. The mocha cappuccino plant protein. Pulse, their pre-workout, which comes in non-stimulant or caffeinated stimulant based. And Recharge, the recovery blend, which also gives me the creatine I need to move weights well in the gym. Legion offers 100% money back guaranteed if you're not happy with their products. And you can save 20% off your first order today with our code MESSYMIDDLE at checkout. That's M-E-S-S-Y. M-I-D-D-L-E at checkout to save 20% today. This is Alyssa Olenek of Little List Fitness. And I'm Kate, otherwise known as Coach Carmichael. We are PhD students, endurance athletes who lift, outdoors enthusiasts, and entrepreneurs. We believe the narrative of the fitness and wellness industry is often far too extreme. So forget about the black and white messages that you've heard. On this podcast, we believe that life is best lived in the messy middle. Welcome back to the Messy Middle Podcast. Today, I am joined by my sister-in-law and best friend, Julie Krizosferidis. Yes, that is a long last name and technically the last name of my uh, future husband, but I'm not keeping it. (laughs) For good reason. Yeah. It's a, people will call us doctor and Dr. C. Yeah. <laughs> Julie as well. Yeah. Um, she's a fourth year doctoral candidate in clinical psychology and a 200 hour registered yoga teacher. She received her master's in psychology from Georgia Southern University, where we met back in 2017. And she's been practicing yoga since 2014. Also, very important to note, she has a cute corgi named Schreider. <laughs> <laughs> Julie and I share complicated histories with mental health and movement. And I just really thought that she was the perfect guest to share in this conversation, given her experiences and her expertise. So Julie, welcome to the podcast. Yay. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, fun fun story kind of on the theme of today. We're talking about mental health and movement. Um, and Julie and I, well, of course, we knew each other because we were dating uh, brothers. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we became fast friends by playing Pokemon Go. <laughs> Back in, what was that, 2016? Yeah, it must have been because it was, I was in the middle of my master's program when that Mm -hmm. came out. Yeah, and then I think I was like sticking around in the summer after I had just graduated before moving to Texas. And so we became friends by walking around hunting Pokemon. (laughs) I mean, and also driving around in the middle of the night hunting Pokemon. True. Yeah, I think that kind of defeated the purpose of the app, which was to encourage people to like, you know, walk more steps and we got in the car (laughs) after like a couple of weeks of walking like I don't know how many miles a day and then we were like no let's just way too many (laughs) we need to catch the Pokemon faster yeah and at the time neither of us were runners but we have (laughs) we both picked it up since which is I think funny but 
Um, okay, so <laughs> yeah, right. Um, we'd love to get to know our guests by asking them to tell us about their messy middle journey. So could you share a little bit about any polarizing narratives you may have believed in the past and how you came to find your current approach in the middle? Definitely. So I think I have tried anything and everything in terms of and been duped by anything and everything in the fitness industry. Oh, um, yeah. Had been down the, all of those roads. Um, I've been, you know, gluten free. I've been, you know, I've cut out carbs. I've done the thing where like, I didn't eat like any bread or pasta. Mm -hmm. And instead I just hate like quinoa and seafood all the time, which was disgusting because I hate seafood. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and like, there was definitely a time where I just worked and worked and worked out nonstop just because I thought that was what I needed to do to be healthy all the Mm -hmm. way up until I was so healthy that I ended up hurting myself, which (laughs) forced me to actually not work out for the first time in probably a solid decade. Uh, Mm Because I grew up playing high school sports and had like an okay relationship with exercise during that point. Um, but definitely didn't have an okay relationship with my body, which is probably what led to the over-exercising later on in life. Mm-hmm. And then after I hurt myself, I couldn't do any movement. I couldn't go to the gym. And so I was forced to just listen to my body uh, for the first time and allowed myself to finally eat what I want. And I really started getting back into movement through like really slow yoga practices and I had practiced yoga before I dabbled in it um but once I hurt myself I that was the only thing like my body wanted from me was that really soft Mm -hmm. slow in tune movement um and then I also used that time to just do a lot of reflection of like why I felt motivated to have engaged in those behaviors in the past really like started digging into the research of what was most beneficial for myself and not just for my body, but for my mental health at the same time Mm -hmm. and found intuitive eating, which was basically like, just listen to your body, which was beautiful (laughs) to me because my body was like telling me to just eat pasta and eat, you know, the things that I had deemed bad and scary and horrible. Mm -hmm. And my body has stayed the exact same. Like I'm probably fluctuate. Obviously everyone does, but I can, I wear the same clothes that I wore whenever I was a exercise and powerlifting fiend that I do now. And confirm by the way, (laughs) Julie has like his uh, consistency defines Julie, not just in her body, but in all of her (laughs) efforts outside. (laughs) Like It's like, I don't budge. It's like, Mm -hmm. there has been any fact that I has found that I found hard to believe was that there is a body weight that your body naturally wants to be at. Mm -hmm. And no matter what your efforts, if you crash diet, yeah, you'll probably lose it, but your body's going to rebound back to that natural set point. And I never believed in a natural set point until I realized like it didn't matter what I did like this is this is it this is what I get and I'm pretty cool with that because I think it's pretty awesome 
Yeah, absolutely. And I know, um, I think we've had conversations in the podcast um, past where when we talk about weight, it's really not the number on the scale that is defining the way that you look and feel, but it's really your your composition. And so your body, yeah, for the most part, there's, you know, a little bit of nuance to set point theory. We'll have somebody else come on and talk about that in detail. <laughs> um, you know, but for the most part, our bodies do like to find a homeostasis. And what is really cool is that one you know, if you weigh 145 pounds, that 145 can look really different across different bodies. Um, You know, there could be more lean muscular, or we could be a little bit softer. You know, that weight doesn't necessarily determine how we look and we feel. That's just where our body likes to go. So I like how you reframe that this is just where my body's home is. This is just how it is. (laughs) And that you've like found some acceptance in that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how you know, when you were injured, you said you had to go through this reflective process. And I want to key in here because um, Julie is a psychologist. And a lot of us, I think, uh, especially our listeners uh, who don't have backgrounds in psychology, hint, I I have a bit, but you know, I'm not a full-blown psychologist. Um, it, It can be difficult for us to find that reflective process. And a lot of us do a lot of unlearning and and hopefully that this podcast has helped people do a lot of unlearning in those what we call black and white narratives or polarized thinking and i think that all or nothing mentality that gets applied to fitness is is just it's a more general approach and in terms of psychology so can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about uh that kind of all or nothing thinking in in terms of psychology and that mindset shift Mm -hmm. and what that reflective work looks like yeah so i think all or nothing is so when we think about thinking patterns there's a whole list of them (laughs) and all or nothing is typically one of the most common that people can find within themselves and it's usually when somebody it's either you know you either have to be working out five times a day or you're a failure in some sort of the way like that's just how like your brain your brain like ends up trying to trick you And it's usually a result of the fact that it's a lot easier for our brains to deal with absolutes. Like you Mm. don't have to do as mental, as many mental gymnastics if there's just one way or the other. Right. And so when we talk about how our brain works, there's usually two thinking patterns that we can engage in. And one is the easiest and can lead to these thought traps such as all or nothing thinking, black and white thinking, those types of things. And that requires the least amount of effort from our brain. And so we're not using as much energy from our brain. And then the other pathway actually requires like substantial thought. And if you're thinking (laughs) about that topic, whatever it may be that you're just kind of seeing in these very right right, right or wrong, black or white terms, uh, that you can't, it's requires a lot more effort than that. And so it requires you Mm -hmm. to dig into like, what is the gray area here? How, like, what are my, what is the evidence for this? And what is the evidence against this? And that takes a lot more mental energy. And so our brain doesn't like to do it that often Yes, (laughs) because it likes to save time. It likes to save the glucose that we need to reserve for other things. And we think, okay, well, if I can just shortcut this, I don't, then I can, apply that thinking elsewhere but eventually you're gonna have to bring that thinking home to what you've been applying the shortcut to eventually 
Yeah. And Can we frame this in uh, the realm of decision fatigue? Because we've definitely talked about that on the <laughs> podcast before. It's one of my favorite things to to chat about. And I think since we've been in the pandemic for an entire year, mm-hmm. I was actually, I think I just had this conversation with you the other day on the phone, but I'm going to share with our listeners. Um, you know, I, I had been struggling with procrastination for, for a long time. Like I'm a perfectionist. I tend to like put things off until the last minute, not because I am like waiting to do them last minute. It's because it's never good enough. Right. (laughs) And so I work until the due date because I'm always tweaking and, you know, we're, I've been working on that myself or we'll talk about my own therapy journey later. Uh, (laughs) but when it comes to the pandemic, I find, I've found myself and a lot of people have found themselves a little more cognitively drained. And I was wondering for a long time what the true source of that was for me. Was it the the lack of social interaction, the the lack of, you know, regular conversations? Was it just kind of me deloading? And what I think I've found is for me, there's a lot more decisions in my day that I have to make that I didn't have to make before. Mm -hmm. My schedule is so much more open because I don't have to go in person for these obligations. And so when I wake up in the morning, it's, it's not a routine or habit that's driving me. I've got to make all of these decisions about, well, am I going to get dressed today or I'm going to stay in my pajamas, (laughs) you know, and all of those things I think add up and that has been a continual struggle. So, um, yeah, any, any thoughts on decision fatigue and how that plays into that all or nothing thinking? Absolutely. I think that so when we wake up and as we go about our day, we have a set amount of energy that we have and that we're able to function with. And that's going to depend on a lot of different factors. Um, but a lot of it is our brain chemicals uh, that mm-hmm. we're currently functioning and firing with. And if your brain chemicals are altered in any way for any reason, like you're going to have you're going to drain faster. And so by when you have more decisions to make throughout the day, such as, you know, what to eat, what, you know, project that you're going to work on, because I know as grad students, it's never just the one project that you're working on. (laughs) No, (laughs) choose from the very long list. (laughs) Exactly. The very long to-do list. And, you know, so where am I going to put my energy today? What needs my focus today? And then also like, I know you and I, like we both have dogs. So it's like, okay, so how am I going to, you know, entertain my dog today? You know, Mm -hmm. how am I going to be a good friend today? How am I going to show up as a wife today, as a, you know, a daughter? And so there's all these things on our plate. And if we were to actually give substantial thought to each and every one of those decisions, no, we would all be done by like, (laughs) 9 a.m. Like, yeah, no. And so instead, it's what's easiest is to have those quick decisions. And so that you can save that cognitive power for the things that really need it, such as working on a dissertation, or working on, uh, you know, something that needs to get published, or you're working towards getting published, those sorts of things, because that's where you need that effort. And so, you're, you are making more decisions and so you deplete faster and then you're also trying to find ways to save yourself from depleting faster. So you're trying to take more mental shortcuts, which can yeah. you know lead you into these thinking traps because it's just a little bit easier to get there. Right. Yeah. And I think I, I left my circle open. So let me bring this full circle when I was talking about procrastination <laughs> earlier, um, because I feel like what has been the occurrence for me is that I've 
not uh, done a, a, the best job at creating a lot of new habits in, in quarantine. You know, I people want to fall back on what we used to, but our mm-hmm. our lives don't look the same as they did a year ago. And so when I'm making all of these other decisions or I'm required to, now my decisions look like, okay, figure out what I'm going to do for graduate school or my business or my wedding that I'm planning or like, you know, <laughs> think about all the things I need to do or watch a bunch of TikToks. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, do I need to make that decision or can I just keep scrolling, you know, or can I just mm-hmm. do whatever again, like you said, is easiest. So for me, I think what I used to think was procrastination, like perfectionism based procrastination is now more of a decision fatigue related phenomenon for me um, in, in quarantine. Mm-hmm. But I want to circle back to this conversation when we talk about how to engage in exercise uh, in this day and age and when things are hard. Uh, but I first want to go back to the basics. Let's break it down because I think the term mental health gets thrown around a lot these days. And, you know, what is good mental health or poor mental health? And, you know, really, is that the way we should define it? Um, But what does mental health really entail? Can you define what it is, what it means, what it looks like? So I agree. I think that mental health is kind of really just this it's become kind of like a wastebasket kind of term. Like you just throw anything and everything at it and it's become something unrecognizable uh i think like if you google it it says something along the lines of mental health is a combination of your physical emotional and spiritual well-being which Mm. okay (laughs) (laughs) that's a lot (laughs) sure Um, I also like to think of it in terms of like, what is the relationship that I'm having with my body, with my emotions and with my thoughts? And Mm -hmm. is it a good relationship where I'm working in conjunction with all those things? I'm responding and I'm listening to the cues that all of those things are giving me or am I off kilter? Am I somehow out of step? Um, and my relationship with those things. And how is that impacting me? How is that impacting my life, my relationships, and all of those sorts of things. And so that's how I generally like to think about mental health is what is our relationship in relation mm. to these big three things, you know, our bodies, our emotions, and our thoughts. I, lo- I love that reframe. I want to dive in a little bit more. So when somebody uh, who has a lot of anxious thoughts, for example, mm-hmm. I'm imagining that they're fighting their brain by saying, you know, there's for some of us that voice in the back of our head that's extra critical or mm-hmm. is maybe causing excessive worry over something that maybe objectively we shouldn't have to, you know, I use the word shouldn't, um, <laughs> something that something that we're really not logically worried about the likelihood of that situation going awry is is kind of low but our brain is saying no 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 you need to worry about this a lot you need you can't do anything else but worry about it even when you can't control the situation so is that an example of how you would be fighting your brain or could you give us more on that yeah that's definitely a great example on fighting your brain um anxiety and um anything that's in the anxiety realm of disorders like um for people with OCD, they're fighting their thoughts a lot. Mm. People with phobias, they're fighting their thoughts a lot because it, you can't really approach with logic and with reason because like on some level, like 
Sure. Yes. But your brain is for all the glory and credit that we give it as being like the, the epitome of the human race, right. and the, fact that it's the proof that we are the most evolved species. Uh-huh. Our brain is so stupid. <laughs> it's just so dumb. And so yeah. like, and if you're kind of taking all of this input and all these thoughts is like really, really true then you can kind of develop a negative relationship with those thoughts and with the reaction that it produces in your body. Because if your brain is sitting there convincing you with your thoughts that Mm -hmm. the worst possible outcome is going to come up. So like, if you don't, this was mine for a long time. Like if I didn't finish my dissertation, then I wasn't going to graduate. And if I didn't graduate, I wasn't going to be able to get a job anywhere. And somewhere down the line, I was going to end up like being the person under a bridge like I was gonna be a bridge troll like that was legitimately like how like that was where my brain went don't finish Mm -hmm. dissertation you will end up a bridge troll right whereas like that's not really (laughs) logical but like those were the thoughts my brain was producing which had caused my like physical body to Mm. just like start experiencing I I broke out in hives like my heart rate would increase when I had these thoughts all these things so my thoughts are now creating like this negative relationship with my body and it's causing my body to freak out and now I'm a mess and I'm just like trying to like tackle one thing at a time and so yes if you're Mm. that how our thoughts and our bodies and our emotions all they all interact together and then how we respond to those things whether we can interrupt those thoughts or we can calm down the physical reactions of our bodies or redirect ourselves in some way, that all can kind of impact how our mental health materializes, for lack of a better Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love that. I So I remember there's we mentioned at the beginning, there's different ways of thinking. There's so many different ways. Um, but I remember one of them, you know, like their name does leaping to conclusions. Right. And so the example you gave sounded to me like you went from point A to like a potential point E, like from A to E right there. Like there's a million other steps in between, but you just jumped to that final conclusion and that was solidified in your brain. Mm -hmm. Do you off the top of your head, if not, (laughs) can (laughs) take a break and move it in a different direction. But do you have some examples of those other styles of thinking uh, that we could point out to our listeners to look out for? Absolutely. So jumping to conclusions is one. And so um, it's not always, it doesn't always look like jumping from A to E. It could look like, um, you know, my boyfriend didn't text me back. So therefore he must be cheating on me. Like, mm-hmm. okay, possible, but not, you know, you don't have enough information to make that conclusion yet. Right. <laughs> Catastrophizing is another one. And so that for me is a big one. So if I failed, I'll end up a bridge troll or somebody's going to die. Or if I don't go and, you know, complete this task by this time, all of a sudden, I, you know, the world will explode or my world will fall apart. Catastrophizing is a big one. Um, And even the opposite of that, minimizing. Minimizing Mm -hmm. is a really big thinking trap. So if you're consistently kind of 
not able to actually see the big time consequences of what can occur Mm -hmm. because you're like, oh, it's no big deal. Oh, it's no big deal. Downplaying it. All those no big deals do add up to a big deal later on. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The more time you spend saying it's not a big deal, it'll get done. Eventually, like there are more consequences for not getting Mm -hmm. it done. And failing to recognize that is just as big as a problem as assuming the world is going to end if you don't get it done immediately. Right. So those are some common ones off the top of my head that I can definitely think of that are, that I see most commonly when we're in the client. No, that's great. Um, So now let's take the flip side. When things are going well with your mental health, you feel like you are mentally healthy. Mm -hmm. You are in sync with your, you said your thoughts and um, your beliefs, behaviors. I don't know all of those things, right? Uh, What does that look like? To me, that looks like coping strategies, Mm. resilience. Um, So you can have negative thoughts. Everyone has negative thoughts. Um, Mm. If you spiral or if you're able to interrupt those negative thoughts, challenge them appropriately, Mm. or let's say like it's a, a physical reaction. You have a physical reaction to something. So um let's say like you get a bad grade and all of a sudden your heart rate's increasing you're in a puddle Mm -hmm. of tears this happened to me once where I just like had a (laughs) full-blown panic attack over a grade Mm -hmm. which in the grand scheme of things I passed the class I passed my degree like so why I was in a corner like hyperventilating crying but recognizing those signs in your body and being able to interrupt it and be like, okay, why am I responding this way? Mm -hmm. How can I calm my body down so I can think about how I need to approach this situation that's Mm -hmm. causing my body to react this way? Or, and then alternatively, if there's nothing I can do, how do I cope with that? What Mm -hmm. can I do to make myself feel okay. And that doesn't necessarily, and a lot of people will hear that and be like, oh, that's just justifying a behavior or mm-hmm. making an excuse for yourself. And having self-compassion is not making excuses for yourself. It's actually a very, very healthy thing to have. And I think the biggest thing, especially with people all that I've seen and you know, my friends and my family, is we have so much compassion to give to each other and we can like see where we need to give that compassion to other people. And then when we like look at ourselves, it's like all of a sudden that compassion doesn't apply to us. And like, we shouldn't have that for ourselves. You know, we tell, you know, it's not that big of a deal. You'll get it done. Just take a deep breath. But then when we try to give ourselves our own advice, that's all of a sudden doesn't apply to us. And then, Mm -hmm. but a good mentally healthy kind of approach is to be able to be like, okay, I can look at myself and say, let's take a deep breath. Let's calm down. What's the first thing do I need to do? And that's Mm -hmm. that self-compassion. So Mm -hmm. self-compassion, coping skills, and resilience is kind of how I see healthy mental health. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Great. No. Okay. So I want to key in on a couple of things. The first being that everybody experiences negative thoughts or reacts poorly to situations or so on and so forth. And I just think I really want to emphasize that because 
here, Julie is a psychologist, albeit, <laughs> you know, you're just shy of your doctorate. Congrats on your dissertation, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but a psychologist is not perfect. It's not like you exist in a happy bubble of emotional status the entire no, time. There is no qualification that says to be a psychologist, you must be mentally stable. Which is <laughs> a little terrifying. Like if you might be listening to this and be like, oh my God, my psychologist isn't even mentally stable. Are you kidding me? And it's like, no, like we're stable. Like we have skills and we want to teach you those skills, but everybody has problems. Like we yes. all have like these moments where we, we forget get like we Mm -hmm. like your psychologist your therapist your counselor they are not on this high and mighty like cliff just because Mm -hmm. they sit in one chair and you sit in the other absolutely not because I guarantee you if all of a sudden the chairs were reversed and I explain this to my clients all the time because Mm -hmm. I value transparency if the chairs were reversed and I was in the chair that required disclosure and was seeking help and they were the ones having to listen, they would be like, oh no, honey, what are you doing? Why? Why are you doing that? I guarantee you it's the same thing if you and your counselor and you and your therapist were to switch chairs and they were to tell you about their life, it's the same thing. You'd be looking at them being like, what? (laughs) The Messy Middle Podcast will be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. The Messy Middle Podcast is hosted on Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free, which considerably helps with all of the production costs you normally have, except that on Anchor, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on all platforms, including Spotify, Apple, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum audience through sponsorships and monthly contributions from your subscribers. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Right. And I think it goes back to that self-compassion piece and just having that outer perspective. I think even, um, you know, there's a lot of layers to self-compassion, but when it comes to having compassion for other people, part of the reason that it's easier is because we're able to step back. We're not the ones deeply enthralled in those emotions or those experiences. So it's easier for us to take a logical approach approach, be compassionate for that person. And so when it comes to turning it inward, it it can be difficult for that reason. And because we've been taught to uh, be hard on ourselves in uh, our culture. Absolutely. Uh, And funny enough, I'm actually, I just started reading Self-Compassion by Dr. Krista Neff. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't have, I'm not far enough in to provide any insights there. (laughs) But uh, so that's on my recommended reads, I guess, uh, so far anyway, if if you guys are interested in self-compassion in that topic, because I'm sure we could go on about that for Oh, absolutely. Ever. I mean, there's books written on it, so you know, go read them. <laughs> <laughs> go read the long list of books. <laughs> right. Oh, goodness. Okay, so spoiler alert. We know that movement is good for mental health, and we are going to focus a lot of our conversation on that piece today. But aside from physical activity, how do we take care of our mental health on a day-to-day basis? What does that look like? I think that that's a, a great question. And uh, I think that the term self-care gets thrown around these days as much as the term mental health does, so much mm-hmm. so that people don't really know what that means anymore. Um, yeah. When I think about the basics of taking care of our mental health, I think of 
eating. You have to eat. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, keeping yourself alive. Whatever that looks like for you. Like eating has is such a loaded word in our society, but whatever mm. that looks like to you, like eating things that feel good in your body. And I'm going to leave it at that because that varies depending on what's available to us in our communities, our mm-hmm. socioeconomic status, and a whole bunch of other factors. So let's just leave it at the fact that we need to be able to eat. We have to feed and we have to nourish ourselves. Um, getting adequate sleep. You're the sleep yes. expert. You know how good yeah. that is. <laughs> um, and sleep and usually changes in our sleep can be a very good cue that something is going on with us. That something, is, something is different and we need to kind of tune into what that might be. Um, and then the other things that come to mind are taking breaks, <laughs> taking mm-hmm. time to be alone, taking time to be in the quiet of yourself. And that's really scary for a lot of people because they're like, if I'm alone, then my brain's really mean to me. And I get that. Mm-hmm. And it's also really important to learn how to like sit in stillness. Stillness is something that I'll kind of revisit when we talk about why yoga is so good for mental health. Um, but it is one of the things that I do advocate for is finding stillness in your day in addition to finding some type of physical movement in your day. And the two don't have to be mutually exclusive, but there you go. One or the other, at least. And then the other things that are important are social support, your social support network. And that can look a very different to a lot of different people. For some people, they're really close with their family and, you know, that's wonderful and beautiful and they call their family for everything. And for some people, like, that's not their social support. And so they have a really mm-hmm. strong friend network or their found family and that's beautiful and wonderful as well. But some sort of social support, somebody that you can turn to and there's, you know, sometimes that's even loaded for people of like, I can't turn to anybody, I, you know, what if I burden them? Finding someone, whoever that may be, and it may not even be anybody in your family or found family. Maybe it's just finding a really good connection with a really great counselor or therapist, but some some sort of social support. So to recap, eating, sleeping, solitude, movement, and social support. Those are kind of the yeah. key things I see for taking care of your mental health, for checking in and noticing difference in, in all of those things is a really mm-hmm. great key into like maybe something has changed within me that I should check into for myself. Yeah, absolutely. I love you broadening that to um, some of these main categories where we can input different ways because we're all individuals. We all have different things that make us feel good mentally, physically, however. And so while you uh, gave some examples, we can really zoom out and see how that would apply to our lives. But now I'd love to get specific. And if you don't mind disclosing, uh, I want to know what that looks like for you in terms of what are those, how do those five areas shape up in the actions that you're doing day to day to make sure that you have uh, nourishment, social support, movement, stillness, and which one am I forgetting? Sleep. Hello? <laughs> How could you forget sleep? I know, right? It's just because it's so ingrained. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sleep, sleep. Everybody can sleep. Yeah. Um, so I'll actually start with that one because that one is a really big 
um, in my own life, like I notice that when my sleep starts to change, like that's usually that acute to myself that something's going on that I need to mm-hmm. dig into. And so I have a very, very strict sleep routine and anybody, especially you, Kate, you know, this knows that I'm very sacred about my sleep schedule. Mm-hmm. I am in bed no later than nine o'clock and I sleep until about generously about 5 45 maybe six if strider my dog is let's you know <laughs> me and is feeling generous that morning yeah. <laughs> um but honestly like going to bed early waking up early like that is what my body thrives off of i mean i've already like if it's 8.30, 8.45, and I'm not already, like, starting my wind-down routine, mm-hmm. something is wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's how I approach sleep. But, again, that's different for everyone. Yes, um, and we have a whole sleep episode that will be out before this one. So <laughs> you guys need to go and revisit it if you are like, what? Sleep? How? <laughs> go back. How do I sleep? And my topic- <laughs> My biggest thing is, and something that I talk to people a lot about, is having a sleep routine. So doing things that turn on that signal in your brain that it's time to go to bed. Oh, yes. And so I have a very solidified sleep routine. Like, I got a lot of that from you, Kate, but also, like, just in my own journey as well. Um, For nourishment, that looks so different day to day and looks so different now that I have defended my dissertation versus like when I was a first year grad student. As a first year grad student, like nourishment meant just like any food that I could eat as fast as I could because like I had no time. Like I was, you know, learning all of these new things. I was in a new place and I had all these new responsibilities. And so like and my classes, my first year, I don't know if anybody else is a first year grad student, but it was absolute hell. I cried a lot. I mm. ate a lot of Taco Bell because that's all I had the energy for. <laughs> um, and, you know, that was that was first year. But now that I'm in my fourth year and I defended my dissertation, I have a little bit more space and a little bit more energy to give. So, like, I order HelloFresh for myself because decision-making fatigue to kind of loop back to what we were talking about in the beginning. If somebody Mm -hmm. can just send me what I'm going to make throughout the week. The recipe and the ingredients. You're (laughs) done. Perfect. I don't have to plan it. They just send it to me. And then all I have to do is decide which day I'm going to cook it and when. And that is perfectly fine with me. And so now I can like make. I'm going to make a note if HelloFresh could sponsor this episode, please and thanks. Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So HelloFresh like delivers my meals and that has been really helpful just to make sure that I'm getting like varied food throughout the day, because that's important to me um, is changing up my nutrition and making sure I'm not just eating the same things over and over again. But when I feel meh, a lot of times that means like cooking myself lots and lots of pasta or mm-hmm. eating pop tarts or whatever it is that my body's like, ooh, serotonin. Yes. 
<laughs> so that changes. But right now, this is what it looks like. is nice, HelloFresh meals and maybe like some oatmeal in the mornings and just regularly scheduled things. <laughs> Can I disclose that me and Julie both have the same serotonin foods and it's cheese and bread. And we literally made a song about cheese and bread because of how much we adore it. That's all. <laughs> I just wanted to input. continue. Side note. Side note. <laughs> I have read that song to other people and I sing it when I do have cheese and bread with no. other people and they look at me like I'm crazy. Yeah. I mean clearly we are we we're big nerds who play Pokemon Go and make songs about cheese and bread. So <laughs> um and then for me stillness practices so that also like changes and I try to just acknowledge and accept the fact that this changes because there is a time in my life where I would beat myself up if I'm missed my dedicated silence time. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, you know, there are weeks and months where I can carve out specified time to meditate. And I love those times. I think it's beautiful. And lately, my silent time is leaving my phone and everything in my apartment while I go walk my dog. And mm-hmm. I really may use that time to just hang out with him, enjoy what is finally the warm weather here in Washington state, at least on the Eastern side. Like I can walk out with just one sweatshirt on, not a sweatshirt and a heavy jacket and a scarf and a hat (laughs) and a mask. (laughs) So it's, it's nice to just kind of go outside on a walk without all of these things bombarding me. And so Mm -hmm. that's been my silent time lately. Um, And my movement, my movement lately, is yoga, teaching yoga, taking yoga. Um, I've gotten back into running because I took a break because of all the snow, because I'm sorry, (laughs) if you can run when the snow is up to your knees, I bless you, you you are amazing. (laughs) You you are a goddess, like good for you. (laughs) Me, I said, what are you? (laughs) I'll pick this up in the spring. Yeah, And um, my social support, like I have my friends in my program who are amazing. I have you, thankfully, Yay. because without you, the world would be a little bit of a darker place. I would and have a hard time. I have without you. <laughs> and all of those things. And so for me, like that's what those things look at look like. And I think the important thing there is like that's never static. Like, yeah, it's never static. It never looks one way. And so, and I think that that is a huge trap that we can fall into another thinking trap that it has to look a certain way. If this person who wrote this really beautiful self-help book has accomplished so much, they wake up at 5am and they meditate for 20 minutes every day before starting their day. And then they drink a cup of lemon water and all Mm. of these things. That's great if that works for them and they have that time to do that every day but that doesn't look like that for everyone and it certainly doesn't look like that for everyone all the time and so accepting that finding what it looks like day to day and how it changes and just working with it and still finding those things and how it can fit into your life I think that is the biggest take-home message of like why I you know differentiated between where I'm at now versus what it looked like a couple years ago. Absolutely. And I think not only can you 
not look to other people to develop your own, you know, self-care or wellness routines. Uh, But just like you said, your day-to-day might change drastically because different seasons happen in your life and you need maybe a little bit more movement sometimes, or maybe you need a little more stillness and silence. It really depends on some of those external things that are happening in your life and, and what you're working towards as an individual. So absolutely. I think a lot of us get stuck in, and especially when we changed, um, you know, everything last March from mm-hmm. from going about <laughs> our lives as normally as we thought was normal, and then you know having these stay at home orders, and everything really shifted for us. And I think a lot of us found trouble with, oh, but I'm not doing things like I was doing then, mm-hmm. you know. And your self care routine, I, mine has definitely changed an entire lot. We're going to talk about that a little bit in a second here. Um, but you know, we, we need to be a little bit more flexible. And I think that comes back to that self-compassion piece, because if we don't give ourselves the flexibility to grow and change and be a different person, we're not really truly loving ourselves for where we're at now and, and allowing ourselves to be what we need to be, um, and give what we need in that moment. So I love that. Yes. It's not going to look like Susie's down the street or Karen on Instagram. It wouldn't be, we're not following Karen's advice. Anyway, sorry, Karen. But it's not going to look the same for you across your lifespan. Definitely not. So I love that. All right, let's get into the bread and butter of today. Exercise, physical activity. Let me quickly define those two. Um, and then we're going to talk about how movement in general is good for your mental health. So when we say exercise, we're talking about planned, structured physical activity that is for the purpose of achieving a certain fitness goal or improving your fitness generally. So structured would be you are planning the frequency, the duration, uh, you're planning the the intensity, and that's all in a purposeful design to improve your fitness. Physical activity could just be anything that you are doing, um, maybe not with the goal of fitness in mind, but it could definitely still improve your fitness. This could be walking your dog, going on a hike, just walking to and from your classes and on campus. And I use the word movement as well, uh, because I think movement can be a little bit more inclusive sometimes than physical activity. But all that aside, I will personally use physical activity and movement interchangeably. That is like non-designated, just moving your body in whatever way seems fit and exercise is that structured for the goal of fitness. So wanted to clear that up, but um, we know that movement is good for mental health. So let's talk about it. Um, I have some information that I just want to share and Julie, feel free to interrupt and chime in here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just wanted to talk uh, briefly, especially on anxiety, because I know uh, there can be this caveat and this dichotomy with anxiety because some people, um, and disclosure, I have anxiety, I've had anxiety, I deal with anxiety. So I'm I'm speaking with you, uh, not at you. <laughs> but I say that it can be hard for people with anxiety to exercise, um, and especially in certain ways, because a lot of the exercise symptoms like increased heart rate, respiration, feeling red in the face, all of that comes with anxiety. And those are the symptoms that we dislike and anxiety. So when we exercise, sometimes that can bring about those feelings and the negativity we associate with those symptoms in an anxiety state. And so exercise acutely, when I say acute, I mean a single short bout, um, 
when we have acute exercise, it can be difficult for people with anxiety to want to engage in that. But over the long term, um, of course, it's beneficial because you're kind of exposing yourself to your fears. <laughs> it's kind of like exposure therapy. Look at that. Um, because you're repeatedly exposing yourself, you're raising your heart rate, you're increasing your respiration and exercise, and you're creating a different association. So now when my heart rate is up, when my breathing is heavy, it's because I'm working so hard on my fitness <laughs> and not because I'm panicking about what have you for that day. So um, I want to quickly quote some meta-analyses or, or just regurgitate some of the findings um, that research shows that a single bout of exercise provides small but consistent improvements in anxiety symptoms. Um, and that's from a meta-analysis in 2015. Uh, so those effect sizes small. However, research often includes participants who don't even report elevated anxiety to begin with. <laughs> so um, <laughs> uh, the, thus, those people might not be able to improve their anxiety much if they're not having a problem with it. So good news for you highly anxious individuals. You're even more likely to benefit from <laughs> exercise because you have more room to improve. We also see general improvements in positive uh, moods or affect and decreases in negative moods and affect, uh, decreases in stress. That's also commonly reported even after a single bout of exercise. Uh, chronic exercise, which is exercise repeated over time, is what we really see those larger improvements in our mental health. And a recent review of uh, prospective cohort studies, which are studies that happen over a long duration of time, they found 13% lowered odds for anxiety symptoms and 34 to 48 lowered odds for anxiety for those who are physically active. Again, physical activity, not even planned structured exercise. Um, and this is likely an underestimate. There's probably, again, better improvements because these individuals tend to self-report higher levels of physical activity than they truly <laughs> engage in. Um, and that's just a, a qualm in the kinesiology literature all over. It's difficult to get people to report accurately how much they exercise. Mm -hmm. um, so exercise likely reduces anxiety to a fairly moderate amount. Um, and many meta-analyses also find improvements in symptoms of depression with regular exercise. Um, there's a lot of recent reviews on that as well. So Julie, any comments to the benefits uh, for your mental health aside or in, in tandem with those anxiety and depression statistics I just threw around? Absolutely. I mean, I think that um, exercise is such a great little and physical movement. I, I prefer physical activity and movement to mm -hmm. like those terms uh, because I feel like they're less loaded. Um, yes. People hear exercise and they kind of maybe freak out a little bit, at least in my experience when I'm like, yes. find some time to move your body. <laughs> yes. and I will disclose that this is the Messy Middle podcast full of people who are following us for mostly our fitness advice. So I will say <laughs> yes. this, this audience is like exercise, we're here for it, even though it's hard. Yeah. Well, I will you know just say the words and they will happen and <laughs> they will be really to... not a kinesiologist so they might intertwine a little bit more yes but I we're always to... talking about movement at the end of the day yes exactly I will try to stick to Kate's definitions that she provided <laughs> but at the same time I'm a psychologist and so my words They're are a little more blended yes exactly. <laughs> overall 
exercise and movement is going to be great for your depressive and anxiety symptoms for either helping you develop a new relationship with those symptoms or just by helping you alleviate some of those symptoms to begin with. And we see that not just in the kinesiology literature, but also in the psychological literature. And on top of that, we even see that in um, research done specifically like for yoga and on yoga is mm-hmm. across the board we see those effects and so I think that's something to consider is that if three different realms <laughs> of yes. study and granted they're all interrelated in some way but they're all coming to that conclusion that physical movement is good for your body and good for your brain like there must be something there Yeah, absolutely. Um, So let's dive into why, because I I think a lot of people are like, yeah, great. We've heard it before, but like, what is exercise actually doing? What is movement actually doing to improve your mental health? So I've got a few um, points. And again, Julie, feel free to chime in um, if you want to expand on any of these. Uh, The first one is the distraction hypothesis. And this is one of like the old school uh, Mm -hmm. beliefs that Exercise diverts your attention away from your thoughts or symptoms related to anxiety. And while this is certainly true, um, maybe this isn't the best way that exercise improves because exercise, yes, great temporary distraction. So is watching TV, right? But TV doesn't improve your mental health. Right. So there's a little bit more to it than that that alone. I think that this is a great thing for short-term interventions for anxiety Um, This is kind of something that I really recommend is to trick your brain and trick your body. Uh, So if you start to notice those panic or anxiety symptoms of like increased heart rate or you're starting to sweat or you're getting like your body temperatures rising, those are all signs of anxiety. Exacerbate it. Make your heart rate skyrocket. Go do like for me two burpees, uh, <laughs> or, or, this, though. or maybe like high knees or jumping jacks. Skyrocket mm-hmm. that heart rate. Distract yourself, but also your body can't sustain it for very long, and so mm-hmm. it has to crash. It has to come down, which automatically is going to reprogram your body and your brain to do something different, and therefore sending the message that okay, maybe I'm not anxious. And so I think the distraction hypothesis is great for that short-term intervention. Yes, yes, I love that take on it, um, especially because in kinesiology we wouldn't uh, reach that conclusion. Which I th- also think it's um, it's great though that we're coming from these different disciplines, and like you said, if all of these separate disciplines are coming to the same conclusion, it's it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to make a general comment that even though, so I'm an exercise psychologist, which means I take courses in psychology and they are in the department of psychology. It's not like kinesiology is found in their own little psychological sphere. Um, and, and you know, for like maybe sports psychology classes, but that's kind of it. Uh, these are separate disciplines and they do operate very separately for the most time. Uh, and I think that research specialization has even separated the borders a little bit more strongly. So when two differing subjects agree, it really is a big deal because you don't yeah. always have that collaboration. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Next thing, improved sleep. Of course, exercise is great for your sleep and sleep is good for your mental health. And they are all uh, interrelated exercise, sleep and mental health. They all kind of coincide and this can become like cyclical which is either great or horrible because if you're not sleeping well you're less likely to move you're more likely to experience discomfort in your mental 
thoughts and, and the way that you're caring about your day. Um, and then you're less likely to sleep well if you've got, you know, racing thoughts. And then you're less likely to exercise the next day. Bad cycle. On the other hand, great cycle. If you're moving more, you're sleeping better, you're having more emotional resilience, you're able to address situations as they come, you're sleeping better, you're moving more, and so on and so forth. So, um, exercise can improve sleep, and sleep is really important for mental health. Um, we could talk about that forever. Julie, did you have anything to add here? No, I think that that's perfect. Like, there's nothing else that the psychological literature would would dispute you on that for. Yes, yes. Well, sleep, I will say sleep is technically in the psychological realm, so I did have to dabble over there for it. So, (laughs) okay. Um, Self-esteem improvements can also result from physical activity via changes in your perception of fitness, your body composition, and just the way you perceive your body. Uh, We tend to find ourselves more feeling more capable and more able when we are putting our bodies to the test all the time. Yeah. And I think too, there, there is some, some research in, um, the yoga domain where Mm. it's, you're gaining more control over your body, especially Mm -hmm. if you are having a daily or at least a regular yoga practice, you're learning how to control your body and also a little bit of control over your mind in that way as well. So like you can kind of increase your self-esteem because you're increasing your your competence in these things that you didn't think necessarily that you were competent in before. Um, and so that's, yes. Absolutely. Yes. Let's get into those changes in your brain because that's kind of the big bread and butter of what exercise does. And I will disclose that even though I've taken neuropsychology, my um, understanding of neurological mechanisms is a little weak at this point. Um, <laughs> shout out to uh, my committee members. If anyone's listening, I'm, I'm working on it. Uh, <laughs> it's one of, one of the things I needed to work on for my dissertation. Um, but when it comes to exercise and changes in your brain, um, I want to highlight uh, some of the cognitive processes. So uh, on a larger, broader scale that may be more relatable to people than going into a bunch of neurochemistry, which I'm happy, Julie, if you've got some stuff on that, happy to share. But uh, I'm breaking this down in more uh, just lower level brain terms yeah. or technically upper level because we're talking about executive function, um, which is your metacognitive function. This is going to regulate your brain. So this is kind of what you think of as like your frontal lobe, your more evolved brain. Executive function helps manage your emotions and direct your attentions. So when you're exercising, you're improving your executive function and that's going to help you manage your emotions, how you deal with stress in your life, how you direct your attention away from unwanted thoughts to focus on other activities. Um, Exercise also prepares us to respond to unpredictable events and attenuates our anticipatory anxiety. Yes. Anything to add? (laughs) Yeah, I actually have so much to add. Great, I was hoping you would. (laughs) Mainly because, so um, when I got my 200-hour yoga teacher training, um, I did so with the intention of being able to marry my love for yoga with my love for providing mental health services for people. Yes. And so I ended up doing oh, a deep dive. Let me just say. <laughs> I ended up doing a deep dive into the yoga 
literature research. And I will preface this with the fact that yoga research is very, very hard to do because Mm. of the fact that there are so many different types of yoga and there are so many like ways that you could do the research in terms of methodology. So with that caveat that yoga research is very difficult, I will speak in terms of um, general research that I have found um, and not necessarily specific types of yoga because across the board, what yoga literature has found is that exercise is general exercise is thought to boost your serotonin levels which are those feel good happy chemicals that get released in our brains however mindful exercise like yoga or tai chi or anything along that realm appears more effective in reducing your anxiety and boosting your mood than just general aerobic exercise yes uh, for that mindful component piece where you're having to tune in and connect with whatever you're having to do. Be very, very mindful, not just like willy-nilly. Yeah. Can we break down real quick for um, mindfulness? I think we might have talked about this before where uh, mindfulness and meditation and yoga and some people are really not ready to accept those practices. And that's fine. I'll say, okay, great. You do you. Uh, But mindfulness is not just doing yoga or meditation. It's just attending to your present self. And that could look like attending to auditory cues in the room. That could look like focusing on your breath, which is the most kind of common recommended way to be mindful. It's just being fully present to the situation. So you could take that mindfulness and go on a walk and be very present to how you're feeling in that walk. Um, And I'll let you continue there. (laughs) Yeah. I think that that's the biggest thing that I run up against whenever I'm working with clients and I'm encouraging mindfulness is that it has this certain image that it evokes from people, but you can Mm -hmm. mindfully cook dinner. Yeah. You can mindfully fold your laundry. You can mindfully go for a walk if you're focusing on how your feet are hitting the pavement or the grass if you're noticing the different sounds if you're smelling hopefully the pleasant smells of being outside uh you know all they're tuning into those things and not just like walk 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 while I think about xyz and my to-do list my to-do list yeah Yeah. (laughs) like that's a very different way of walking (laughs) and I remember I have tried a guided mindful walk and it was the weirdest but coolest experience that I ever gave myself to try. And I don't know where I found it. It was probably on I have YouTube one. Yeah. yeah. So I'll link one. I have one because it's on my YouTube playlist for like meditations and mindful activities. Yes. <laughs> so like even just like just see the difference in doing something that's mindful versus like how you automatically would do such a simple activity like fold your laundry and just tune into those different types of things. All of that to say that that mindful exercise bit, when we tune in, we are mindful when we exercise, appears to be more effective at reducing anxiety and boosting mood than when we just go out and we just go for a run. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think today's day and age is is so focused on what needs to be done next or worrying about um, you know future endeavors or past mistakes, you know, dwelling. Um, 
rethinking, oh, what could I have done different? And not necessarily in a productive way, because there is a productive process of reflection, Mm -hmm. but sometimes it could be something that's completely unchangeable that we're just really beating ourselves up for, like, oh, I shouldn't have said that in that meeting. Is that really helping you right now, you know? And so when we are being mindful, we're not attending or worrying or focusing on what's next. We're not reliving, rethinking the past. We are just in the present moment. And that's really hard to come by in today's day and age because we're, again, either thinking about the things we've got to do next. We're so busy that we're never in the present moment or we're mindlessly scrolling Mm -hmm. on our phones or on social media or on whatever website. And that's not really attending to the present in our physical bodies. So that mindfulness piece is very helpful for anxiety, depression. The other things that uh, specifically yoga research has found, and I'm going to nerd out. So, um, I yes. apologize in advance. No, no apologies, <laughs> sir. Okay. So with the caveat that I gave before, so please just, you know, understand that all of this is with a caveat. But- Research isn't perfect. And of course, when there's a newer literature, it's going to be a little bit harder to get everything perfect. Yeah. Exactly. But there has been research that looks specifically at how yoga changes your brain, which I find fascinating because of who I am as a general parent. Yes. So let me give some general definitions. And when I mean general, I mean like very, very general. Okay. So when we talk about the things that yoga has looked at and how it affects things, we're talking about alpha waves, beta waves, and theta waves. So alpha waves are generally associated with Um, decreased pain and discomfort. They're really related to your cognitive performance, including your ability to um, quickly recall things. Uh, Your beta waves are tend to also associated with your cognitive and your academic performance. Increased beta waves usually are related to a higher GPA and beta stimulation is usually shown uh, to decrease your emotional or your state anxiety. So when we talk about state anxiety, we're talking about your natural anxiety that occurs within you, no matter what, no matter what you're doing. And that's- when you're trading. Yes, you're trading. <laughs> your state anxiety. <laughs> gotcha. When we're talking about your state anxiety, we're talking about how you're feeling in that given moment with those given stressors and how that's in playing on your anxiety. I know things. Um, yeah, trait is a personality trait. That's yeah. how I like. That's how you think about it. I've said it before too. You get get in a role and then you just like say things wrong, but you know, exactly. you know it. My my brain transposes things all the time. That's yes. just who I am as a person. Um, and so when we're talking about those things, and we see that compared to non practitioners, so people who don't practice yoga, yoga practitioners appear to have larger beta waves and spurts of alpha waves. And this indicates that they're able to relax even Mm -hmm. while they are alert. So they are firing at all pistons and yet they're still like low arousal status, which is Mm -hmm. pretty cool. Yoga can be separated into researching yoga as a whole, researching the asanas or the postures as they're called, um, or looking at the, uh, the breath work that's associated with yoga. And 
And so what we find is those um, increase in beta waves occurs whether you're just looking at a purely asana, if you're just focusing on the asana without any regard to your breath, or if you're focusing on just your breath work. And so that's pretty cool that no matter what you're focusing on, and I think that that key component is focus, what you're being mindful towards, whether it's your posture or it's your breath. Because to be completely honest, when you're standing on your head, you can't really be thinking about like your grocery list. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're being mindful to either your position and your body and how you're aligned or your breath. And either way, it's devoting attention to the present. Exactly. And yeah. as soon as you let go of that attention, you're probably going to fall. Yeah. <laughs> right. The other things we see with, um, with yoga and our brain waves is that gray matter so when we're talking about our our brain there's gray matter and there's white matter and gray matter more of it is indicative of a healthier brain you want Mm -hmm. lots and lots of gray matter Uh, more gray matter why that's important is protective against cognitive decline it's also helpful or thought to be helpful in preventing against diseases such as parkinson's and alzheimer's disease and Hippocampal volume is also kind of related to that as well and being protective against Parkinson's and Alzheimer's patients. All of that to say is that yoga practitioners tend to have a better cognitive performance because when they look at the brains of yoga practitioners, and I mean like people who have been practicing for years and years and years, is that they have increased gray matter compared to non-practitioners. And they also tend to have greater pain thresholds, which is also correlated with that increased gray matter. And what's also really interesting is that can be really protective against, you know, for us now with that increased cognitive performance. But if we sustain a regular yoga practice, that can be really beneficial for us in the future. If we're talking about holding off Alzheimer's disease or Mm -hmm. holding off cognitive decline, and also at the same time, physically, you're reducing your risk of falling, which reduces your risk of Mm -hmm. breaking a hip or breaking some bones, which reduces your risk of going to the hospital, which reduces your risk of having to pay astronomical medical fees. And mortality in general. (laughs) Exactly. And so like when you look at it, there's just like so many benefits of like starting a yoga practice and then just continuing on with it, not just for your brain, but also for your body and your mental health. Yes. And I am all for yoga myself. Um, I also teach yoga, not currently, but I have. And uh, my, I will say my practice currently is little uh, sad. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a current yoga practitioner really by the, the term. And so I do want to I, say that I am all for yoga, but I do want people to know that if they're not into yoga, that they can still take these elements. Mm-hmm. Um, exercise on its own physical activity is still good for hippocampal volume yeah. and uh, will protect you against that cognitive decline with aging. And of course, you can apply that mindfulness that's going to be more beneficial even so to your mental health than just movement alone. Um, that mindfulness piece you can add to whatever you would like. But yeah, the research on yoga is compelling for as new as it is. And I'm excited to see where that takes us for sure. Absolutely. 
All right, you guys, that is going to be where we wrap up part one of this episode. In part two, Julie and I are going to talk more about how to move when your mental health isn't in the best place and a little bit about how counseling works and how you can get counseling if you're interested. Until then, we want you to live well, demand better, and stay messy.